Welcome back to So What Does Judaism Say About? All kinds of interesting topics and how Judaism relates to them. I'm Rabbi Rick Fox. With me, as always, is the pluralistic Rabbi Mayor Beer. You're laughing harder than usual. Rabbi Beer, how are you doing? Fantastic. It'll become clear later. Uh, today, we're going to try and go further in our series on Shema. What does Judaism say about the Shema is a lot. And I think it's important we try to continue and take a look at this second paragraph Second full paragraph, Vahaya Im Shemoa. It's the long one. Yeah, exactly. You may not have memorized it <laughs> on the rock climbing wall. Exactly. I never even knew it, but didn't know that it existed. It's in the prayer book that I have right in front of me, though, so clearly it does exist. Was that in the Union prayer book in English? I no, this is, this is some, you know, Jerusalem print. Okay, so... Old school. So what is this? This next, uh, this next uh, example. Okay, so we'll start with the most basic and important fundamental of the contrast between the first paragraph and the second paragraph, as the Mishnah in Tractate Brachos, page 13, writes in the name of Rabbi Yeshua, that the Parsha of Shema comes before the Parsha of Shema is the, is the name of the, of the paragraph that contains the, the Vahafta in the Torah, the, sh, the verse Shema is the first verse of the paragraph, then goes into the Vahafta, and you shall love. Uh, that paragraph comes before the Vahaya, which is the second paragraph, because a person first accepts upon themselves the yoke of their kingdom of heaven, essentially accepting God, and afterwards accepts upon themselves observance. So the second paragraph has observance, the first paragraph is accepting God. A broad concept of who God is, what's going on. The second one is, okay, I have to, if I do things these things happen. If I don't do things, these things happen. Correct. So I there's have a job to do. There's a belief system, and then there's a series of responsibilities that you have in maintaining that belief system in a, you know, real in a real time way. Okay. Your life contains a series of responsibilities. Your life contains a series of things you do and you should not do. That's the second paragraph. It's the practical part of the conceptual that is in the first paragraph. Vahaya im Let's translate that. And it will be if you listen. Listen to God. To the commandments which I've com- which I've commanded you, and we'll we'll continue as we go. Yeah. Um, what is important is right there in that first verse. It says to love God, Ula Avdo, and to worship Him, which is not found in that language. Ula Avdo is not found in the first paragraph. Just to love. The first one is just love. The second one is love and serve, or love and worship, love and work for, Correct. slave for. Correct. Whatever. Yeah. The first paragraph says, So I just read a bunch of Hebrew words. But let's translate those words and contrast them. First paragraph, with all your heart or hearts, your soul and all your your wealth, your the money, your abilities. Yeah. Second paragraph only has the first two, your heart and your soul. It doesn't have the third one on Ma'od, Ma'od Chem. And... Another striking contrast is the first paragraph is in the singular. You are you, singular. Levavcha, nafshacha, mo'odecha. The second paragraph is in the plural. Levavchem, nafshachem. Yours. Everybody talking to the community. Correct. So at when, once. So how do we, before we get to the next paragraph, we're immediately confronted with this contrast in who the first and second paragraphs 
are talking to. There are two contrasts. One is in the speech, you know, whatever it is, the singular to the plural, talking to the community. And the second one we're focusing on here is why in the first paragraph of the Shema, when I am commanded to know who God is and love God, it's all three things. My body, uh, my, 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 uh, my hearts, my whole, and, and then my resources. And the second one, just my body and my hearts again. What happened to resources? If I was going to serve somebody, worship someone, you would think that resources, monetary things would be very important, but it's gone. Okay. This is, this is the perfect summary. Now we need the answers. We're going to keep going. So the first step on this explanation starts with a passage that we might've mentioned in previous podcasts. The Talmud and Brachos chapter, uh, page 35 has a quote unquote disagreement between Rabbi Shmuel and Rabbi Shmuel Yochai as to what should the role that a person kind of envisions as the ideal Jewish way of living. Given that God runs the world and everything is up to God and we're just doing our best down here, given that that's an axiom of Jewish faith, what is my recourse in the world? Am I supposed to put everything out and go to work and try really hard and go to the doctor and all those things we talked about? Or am I supposed to lay back because Hashem's got, got it in control and I don't got to do nothing? I just study a whole day. Just study the whole day. Exactly. So Rabbi Shmuel says that the Torah says that, the, you know, quoting a verse in, in Yoshua and Joshua, that the Torah should never leave your lips. You would think you'd take that literally. The Torah then writes... You should gather in the grain, meaning you should work, you should make a livelihood, which is from this second paragraph of the Shema. Gets right to it. Um, in, in the second verse, it says, God says, I'll give you rain, and you will collect the grains, the oils, the wines. You will be a productive farmer, or productive whatever career you choose to do. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai comes back and says, is it possible for a person to be busy with the, all the you know, agricultural responsibilities and be committed to the Torah? No. So Rabbi Shemayachai says a person has to study, be focused on the Torah his entire life, and somehow things will just work out. Somehow. The Gemara and, ends off. And it must be a kosher, by the way, you, to be able to do that. He's a big person. Certainly he is. He might mock it today, you know, with our, you know, what about science and what about uh, the markets and the money? It's like if Hashem runs the world, he can, he can work it out. It's a, that's 100% right. It is, but it's funny that that little cynical line you just said is actually what the Gemara ends off with. The Gemara says that many people have tried to live like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai were unsuccessful. The normative way to live is Rabbi Shmuel, normal life, have a connection to Hashem, but you work, you're on a livelihood, you live that normative experience, you recognize the kind of, you know, necessity to be connected to the normative way, to normative, you know, society, and you don't live this like removed completely devoted to spiritual life. So the question is, does that suggest that a lot of people should do like Rabbi Yishmael and only a few should do like Shem Baruchai? Or really, ideally, everyone should be like Shem Baruchai, but it's really hard. And then the consequence is that since it's so difficult and only very special people will be able to accomplish that, the rest of us bums will have to live like Rabbi Yishmael. Which way? Both are 100% appropriate and you have to know yourself or really there's an ideal of Rabbi Shemar Yochai, but that ideal is far too lofty for the vast majority. So we are going to go with plan B. So I, I think there, there are a number of takes on this, even though there's only really two possibilities. 
And is Rabbi Shimon Yerachai? I think everybody should be Rabbi Shimon Yerachai. Does he think everybody should be like him, or is he like, yeah, I get it? All right. So, so the answer to that, these I are, think, these are good questions. It, yes, they are. <laughs> is what we're discussing. The Nefesh Chaim breaks down the two paragraphs of Shema according to Rabbi Shimon Yerachai and Rabbi Shmuel. The first paragraph said in the singular, those that can devote all of their resources, 100% locked in, in everything they do to spirituality, is something said to individuals. The second paragraph, talking to the majority of people, talking to the community, said in the plural form, is talking to people that are levav chem and afshechem, but you know, they're, still, they're still earning a living. They're still spending large portions of their day not directly connected to spirituality. Sure, there's spiritual values there, their honesty, their integrity, and all that. But at the end of the day, they're leading normative lives. And that is said to most people. There's an expectation that Rishurim Bayochai is not supposed to be done by most people. Does he himself agree with that? So, we'll quote sources which suggest that Rishurim Bayochai does. He understands that there is an elite of the elite right. of the elite. And in that sense, it isn't really a disagreement as much as talking to two different you know, methodologies, two sure. different ways of living. So what we have here is this idea that in the Shema, we're breaking down Judaism into different groups of people. There are people that are going to live more insular, more you know, overtly spiritual lives, and people that are going to live more normative lives. And both groups, as you're pointing out, really need to recognize that there are two paragraphs in the Shema. And to get to your point, we'll discuss a little more, both groups of people say both paragraphs. So those elite, spiritual elite, are saying the second paragraph, and the majority of people who are living more normative lives are also saying the first paragraph. Very interesting. And, and I just thought of something, and maybe you'll tell me that's what this rabbi says, and you're about to read it, but I'll say it anyway, which is maybe they both apply to us at different times in our lives. Maybe they both apply to us at different times of the day. Maybe they both apply to us in different times of the year when I can be more fully devoted, more Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai style, and maybe there are times when I can't, and I have to be flexible in my outlook, and that's why I read both paragraphs as well, to give myself understanding that, yes, there are times when I can be a, be a real champion and sacrifice even my resources, but there are times when, when I need to be much more in the work mode and give and take mode. So that is such a well-said statement that I don't think we need to quote any sources backing it up. We can just leave it. Rabbi Fox on the Shema. All right. We'll quote some sources, but it doesn't, we don't need to quote those sources. But uh, now that we don't need to quote sources, we'll just continue in the paragraph. Uh, but moving along, getting back to that line, those words of the avoda that is contained in here, la'avdo b'chalavavchem. The Nitziv points out that la'avdo b'chalavavchem, the Talmud says, is a reference to prayer. And people that are leading more normative lives need to recognize that they have a responsibility to pray more. As the paragraph continues, and that which is not mentioned in the first paragraph is lest your heart get swayed and you'll turn away from Hashem. If you are involved in non-spiritual pursuits, recognize that it comes with some, some level of danger. Your primary connection to Hashem is not because you're studying 10 hours a day. Your primary connection to Hashem is recognizing in the subtleties, in the kind of between the cracks the behind the scenes that there is a God there. So that requires a focus, and that focus, if it's not there, can lead a person to losing focus and losing their connection to Hashem. But with Avoda, which the which the Talmud in Tractatinus says is a reference to prayer, what is prayer? What is work, worship 
connection to Hashem that is in the heart, that's prayer, is the primary means of connection, of kind of keeping your spirituality robust, that connection there in a solid way, you're going to need prayer for that. Whereas the first person is the person who has a greater focus on Torah study, and that is his primary connection. But, you know, you, you're working 10 hours a day, you had a hard job, and you got to take care of your family, and you got to pay bills. So, you know, you try to study a little bit, but that study is not something you're necessarily devoting the greatest of your energies to. It's just difficult. You yeah. know, you don't have the 10 hours a day to have that as your primary focus. So that you need to have a connection with prayer. And then it sort of likens this. He says, you know, within a society, you'll have people, the most patriotic people, people the most connected to the values of a government are the soldiers, right? They're literally living for the country. Then you have the upstanding citizens that lead their own lives, but at the end of the day, they're they're patriotic. They they feel a you know a connection to their country. They pay the taxes. They pay the taxes. They're they're good citizens. So we have the quote unquote soldiers, those people that this is their job is spirituality. It's what they do. They they do the country. You know, getting back to that analogy. And then those are the people that are fine, upstanding, you know, loyal citizens, but most of their focus is on their own personal needs. It's interesting that we draw the comparison to soldiers because the soldiers actually don't pay the taxes. And yet by the Shema, the most dedicated people are using their all of their resources. So I, I, I think this point is that the soldiers generally don't get paid that much, but they're still putting in their full day. That's right. their career. Right, right. And Every piece of productivity that they're producing, so to speak, their time, and that's a big resource, is going to the government. The entire thing. Exactly. So, you know, call it a civil servant, call it a soldier, an officer, whatever it is. Um, that is that is kind of that that idea. But getting into this turning away, the the, the paragraph continues. You will turn astray, serve other gods, serve gods of others, and bow to them. The Rashi, quoting the Safri, says that this doesn't necessarily mean that you literally will serve other gods. But when a person disconnects himself from from spirituality, from the Torah, it is as if he served another god. Rav Schwab explains that Judaism without Torah is another religion similar to all others which have prayers, rituals, observances, and prohibitions. The attempt to worship God without Torah is essentially not being a connected person. You're just going through motions. The the, um, idea that a person loses his relationship with God and just performs rituals means he's now viewing God as something else. It's not something you have a relationship right, with. Right. That Elohim Achim, that other God, it's just entity. I have to pay, I have to, you know, pay kind my of homage. Exactly, yeah. follow some rules. But when you lose a connection, yeah. then you're broken. And even this person, this normative person with the job, the career, the normal responsibilities, needs to maintain avoda, as we mentioned with prayer, but also with Torah study. If you don't have that active connection which produces love, and the word love is in here as well. So the love in the first paragraph is a person who's totally devoted to it. The love of the second paragraph is maybe a little more subtle, but it needs to be there. You need the avoda, you need to connect with prayer, and you do need Torah study as well. Or God will become something foreign to you. Will not be somebody that you have a relationship with. And both paragraphs highlight tefillin. Yes. Both of them. I don't know which one I would expect it more to be in, but it does appear in the first paragraph in the singular, in the second paragraph in the plural, it's almost the exact same sentences about tefillin. Yeah, so the arm, the strength, the activity of a person and the mind of a person need to be focused on Hashem. You need to maintain that strong relationship, that all-encompassing relationship, albeit in somewhat of a different form for first paragraph people and second paragraph people. Super interesting. 
But getting back to your point of the duality of these paragraphs yeah. and how they relate to any given person, Rabbi Tzadik HaKohen writes in the Sidkas HaTzadik that the Kabbalah Sol Machushamayim of the first paragraph, as we mentioned, that you know this this idea that a person is willing to devote his life to Hashem, he he feels that he would have to give up his Jewish values, his life would have no no purpose or identity. Accepting the whole enchilada with the hot sauce, with the pickles, everything Kabbalah Ol Machushamayim, accepting the entire yoke of God at once, everything is something that everyone needs to do. Now, albeit it might not be as visible because you are having a normative lifestyle, but that acceptance is there. And getting into your point of, so let's say we have the type A people, paragraph one people. <laughs> What's their relationship to the to the second paragraph? The Talmud says that Rav Shun Bar Yochai entered a cave and he was so focused on Kabbalah that when he, when he walked out of the cave, he you know saw people farming and he like, couldn't make heads or tails of this and he you know it was so troubled by the fact that people had normative lives that like he you know he, he was looking at these fields and they and like they were burning up you know with like kind of his focused anger and god said if this is your attitude go back into the cave send him back in he was in there for 12 years get back in for year number 13 exactly and when he leaves he has this kind of epiphany that this is not for everyone so he makes this point that you were saying before that the type one people type a paragraph one people need to also recognize that this is not what most people are doing. And they need to connect and understand and empathize and feel the second way of living also, particularly because that's most of society. And Hashem communicated that to Rishim Baruch Exactly. Hashem put him in the cave for 12 years. He's learning the Kabbalah with his son. He, the Jewish mysticism, the secrets of the world, comes out, is so unfathomable that people could possibly relate to the world in a physical way that he's literally burning everything up. And God says, no, no, you need more time because the, the message is really, you got you have to understand and respect other people as well. Since I mean, he only needs one year for that. Now, I can't help but notice that that one year gets from 12 to 13. And 13, the number 13 in alphanumerical calculation in gematria is echad, oneness, and also ahava, love. So he must have been missing that piece of loving, not necessarily God, but loving maybe all all of life's creations and seeing that there are multiple people. He didn't see the how the duality comes together. He needed that last year. And thirteen is also when people become adults. Amazing, because they have to get that broader that broader exactly. perspective. But it's got to be rooted in love and rooted in oneness. That's Echad. We talked about that in the first podcast about Shema. Well said, Rabbi Fox. Also, doesn't need sources. Good to go. I might. Well, you're the source. Okay. I, I might quote you on that <laughs> original statement. Now, getting back to. You know, is this really, really the ideal? Could everybody in theory achieve first paragraph? That's an individual's point to know. Um, and it would seem that for most people, this is not really what they should be doing. Continuing in the paragraph, we'll mention a couple points just from the language. We won't focus on every word or, you know, you'll get upset at me for talking too much. The Torah writes, You will gather in your greens, your oils, and your wines. So what are the focus of these three things? Grains, wines, and oils. Grains, wines, and oils. So grains, Rav Schwab says, is maturity. The Talmud writes in Tractate Brachos that a child reaches a certain point of development when they start eating grain. They stop nursing, they start eating grain. And grain is when the kind of the, the mind is stimulated. The, um, the das of a person we associate with grain. Grain is like the basic nutrient of a person. 
the basic kind of hallmark of a human being is das, is wisdom, is knowledge, discernment. So that is the basic sustenance. Wine is pleasure. It's not kind of the basic living, the basic understanding that is, you know, what humans need. The the tears to wine is when a person has happiness. And oil is richness. It's light. It's uh, like a further element of, of wisdom. It's an overflow. Yeah. And and it, you know, olive oil is kind of considered in, 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 in Jewish practice the the best type of uh candle candle oil. The menorah in the temple is lit with olive oil. The Talmud writes the Shem and Zayas take eating, consuming olive oil is good for memory. So that like the light, the the kind of the beyond just the baseline intelligence, but really the extra discernment, the richness of, of seeing things is seen in oil. So these products are like the the greatest products of Israel, the grain, the wine, the oil, and you'll be blessed with the physical grain, wine, and oil, but also kind of the symbolism that's contained behind the the understanding, the basic sustenance the pleasure of life found in wine and, and the richness of the oil and the light that the oil can um, can produce is something which people will gain in their jobs. Like, it's not just about making money. There's a certain richness to what you produce. Yeah, there's there's a complex complexities and knowledge and maturity that comes with it and how it deals with multiple types of people. And, and, and the pleasure of the success. That's all part of it. So it, it, there's... There's a richness and a happiness that you have in your job that you can be blessed with, which isn't just that, oh, you'll make money and then be able to buy things with the money. The actual process, the actual food, quote unquote, that you grow has all these like, you know, beautiful, you know, uh, metaphors in them. Wow. And it's a process that you're enjoying. Exactly. So, um, you know, we have these ideas in the, contained within the kind of work that a person is going to be doing. You know, there's... There's the ability to get a sense, of, to get a spiritual depth within the work if you have this focus and this connection to Hashem. Rain also. And the reason why I focus on these examples is because, you know, there is this kind of uh, inappropriate way of interpreting this as being, oh, the Torah is only focused on agricultural people. It's not. All these things are... Metaphors. Yes, yeah. Agriculture is certainly important. We all need to eat food. But there's something that, that is indicated in the in the in the verses are more than just agricultural right and, know, and they all have they all have these double meanings and the words have double meanings i can't help but notice that the words for grain oil and wine are not the typical grain wine and oil words it doesn't say yayin it says what's the word for wine it uses there's tirosh tirosh what is that and then what's the word for grain uh dagon dagon uh, these are not normal words and what's the word for oil uh, Yitzhar. Yitzhar. That's, we know oil is Shemin. So it's hiding metaphors, I think, in these different types of words it's using for these things, not the normal words. And then we see Geshem, the rain, is that's also the root for Gashmut, which means just your basic materialism that you need to survive and enjoy in the world. They're clearly deeper meanings. The, the, the focus on rain that you mentioned, there's a fascinating Gemara. The Gemara in Tainus on page two writes that there are three things which God does not give over to emissaries, and that is rain, the uh, ability, the resurrection of the dead, the, the bringing back of life, and chaya, which is the process of, of giving birth. So these things are all the source of life and energy, and they're all directly co- uh, connected, uh, connected and controlled by Hashem. And you know, in a sense, people in the modern age think that, like the uh, you know, our, we're so scientifically advanced that we can control the weather, right? But we can't. Right. Read the news. Right. You know. Uh, for it's humbling. The, it's humbling. Exactly, and and you know, in in a sense, if there's a spiritual lesson to be taken from climate change, it's that we can't control everything. Right. You know, doesn't mean that we should destroy everything. Oh, a hundred percent. 
but the idea is that, that these are really this, these are like the basic analogies to the source of life, and we we view that as being directly controlled by Hashem. Um, we'll take one more wording from one more contrast between the first and second paragraph. In the first paragraph, it writes that "Vishinantam levanecha," you should teach sharply to your children. The yeah. second paragraph paragraph writes "Ulimanatemosam," you should teach them. That's the typical word for teaching. So the vishinantam is to teach them sharply. Limadatam, to be malamit something, also means getting someone used to something, training someone in. Um, and the Svarna writes that this is the responsibility of parents to be margil their children to, to, to Torah and to observance. To be margil someone means to get them used to it. It's a more subtle thing. It's not that sharp teaching of that completely spiritual focused person. It's the, look, I seem to be a regular person, but I am ragil, I am, you know, I am habituated, I am committed to constantly being connected to spirituality. It's maybe more subtle, not as not as sharp, not as, you know, direct, but also just as valuable a way of teaching. Well, you say valuable, and I can't help but think that the word margalit also, margola margalit, is a pearl. So there's tremendous, you see value, you value things that you spend your time doing. If you spend your time habituating yourself, and you spend a lot of time at work, by the way, hours and hours and hours. So if you habituate yourself in in that in seeing the godly way of living, even in the natural world, it will also become so valuable to you, like a pearl. Yes. We'll end off with one more deep dive, and that is the tefillin. We're diving of- for pearls. I'm sorry. <laughs> Back the, to you. The tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam. Ah. Okay. Okay. So. This is a, a practice which some have. Uh, Chabad, Hasidim do this. Others do this as well. They wear a second set of tefillin. Now, this second set is not mandatory at all. And the difference between the set, which is the mitzvah, the biblical mitzvah, and this Rabbeinu Tam set, the same tefillin, the difference is in the order of the third and fourth paragraphs in the tefillin boxes. The tefillin that we wear, we call them Rashi tefillin, have Shema, first paragraph of Shema, and then Vahaya, the second paragraph, in that order. Whereas the Rabbeinu Tam's phone have those two swapped. And the Shulchan Aruch writes that it is meritorious for like exemplary people to wear Rabbeinu Tam's phone as well as Rashid's phone. You don't make a blessing on it. It's not the mitzvah. So what is the what is the reason for the second set? And just by and large, you know, there are many communities which have a custom specifically not to wear both pairs. So the Vilna Gon was well known for only wearing the first pair. So it, it is not all communities that even do this, but even communities where it is done, it's not it's not a like a stringency in the sense that there's a question if you fulfill the mitzvah. And I think people from Taman might wear them both at the same time. Yeah, so that that is mentioned in in halakhic sources. Some people wear small ones, so you can get them both on the um, you can get them both on the hand. They make these little small ones that can fit on the uh, the bicep and the head. Right. Uh, simultaneously, two pairs. So what what is the kind of meaning behind this? So the Archashokhan writes. Uh, in chapter 34, in the Laws of Tefillin, quoting a Zohar, that Rashi's Tefillin represent here and the now. We have the Shema, we have the ideal, but we end off the Tefillin with the broader normative way of living, which is the Vahaya. Rabbeinu Tam's Tefillin are the Tefillin of the Messianic era. They're the Tefillin of an idealized state that we don't live in, in which we have progressed from Vahaya, from normal living, we end off with Shema, because the actual real living of the Messianic era is that of the first paragraph of Shema. So it's an ideal which we don't, like we, we, we look forward to it, 
But it isn't the living we directly live in now, which is why Rashi's tefillin is the ones that are the real tefillin. They're the real tefillin. They are the baseline mitzvah of tefillin. There is this additional kind of, you know, and you know, ambitious look towards the future, which contained in a Tom tefillin, in which the first paragraph Shema is kind of more pervasive, is the is like the real keeping, and the Vahaya is, is a memory of the past, of the pre-Messianic era. But we don't really live like that. And the society we know, the Vahaya is the one we end off with because that is the one that is considered the normal way to live. So why would the Vilna Goyen, he was an exemplary person, why would he not want to wear the tefillin? This is a good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that. The he Vilna, was an exemplary person. <laughs> certainly was. The Vilna Gaon is quoted as having saying that there are so many permutations of film that would be possible. Twelve at least. He say he gives the number as over 20, sixty. 20, oh wow! So oh, Samsonite, I was way off. It's over sixty. Wow. Uh, without, I, I don't know if this is a correct analysis of his position, but he may have seen multiple versions of how to film. You know, why would, would this be the nece the necessary? exemplary version of what's to come. You'd, you'd have to scramble the first and the second paragraphs, which we haven't even spoken about, right. into the mix. Right. It is therefore it is therefore best for people to just focus on the tefillin of the here and the now rather than get into every permutation that could possibly contain within tefillin. Nevertheless, it's interesting to discuss where this what these Rabbeinu Tom tefillin represent, particularly in regards to the points you raised about this first and second paragraph as to the normative, the special... Like the you know what we see as the ideal and the here and the now, which is primarily the second paragraph of Shema. So if you stop the Shema at the first paragraph, you're really probably cutting yourself off from the most important part, which is how you live in the here and the now, and how you relate to the world, and being out there and working and seeing God there, and all that stuff, which is how most of us live. So maybe those that only see the first paragraph are just living in the Messianic era. I don't know. We'll have to ask them. 